Hi, Journey. How y'all doing today? Great to see you. Great to be with you in the worship of Almighty God. It's just fantastic to be together as a church family, isn't it? This is really, really hard for me to say. I'm going to muster it the best I can. Go Broncos. You just can't, you, you cannot cheer for the Seahawks, right? I mean, they're classless even in victory. I mean, really, taunting my Niners, getting fined for taunting my Niners. Jeez, go Broncos. There's a lot of talk these days, isn't there, about building a balanced life. As a matter of fact, if you Google those two words, it'll come up with about 1.3 million hits or so. Everybody's talking about building a balanced life, striking the perfectly right balance between things like work and home life, balance between personal family life, balance between me time and you time, all in an effort to make the proverbial scales of our lives look something like this. This is a set of merchant scales. The balanced life would look something like this, an equal amount on both sides of the scales so that it hangs in perfect tension, right? Everybody's talking about this. Get this figured out. This is the ticket and so on and so forth. But I was doing some reflecting this week. And this thought begged the question in my mind, is this really what our lives as followers of Jesus Christ are supposed to look like? Are our lives supposed to look like the perfectly balanced set of merchants' scales? That meditation and conversation with the Lord led me to the passage we left off with last week, Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. If you recall, Jesus talking, saying, seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously. And he, that's God, will give you everything you need. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously. And he, God, will give you everything you need. And so I was trying to square this text with what everyone's saying out there about our lives looking like the perfectly balanced set of merchants' scales. And I came to the conclusion that in light of everything that Jesus is saying in this text, I would suggest that the perfectly balanced set of merchants' scales that so many people are talking about, that so many people are in wild pursuit of, is actually not at all what Jesus has in mind for us, his followers, his children, his church. And you look at Matthew chapter 6 verse 33 and you think about a set of merchant scales and in my mind it seems to me that what Jesus is saying our lives should look like would rather be something like this with the weight of the kingdom of God, the pursuit of the kingdom of God over here and everything else quite over there. Doesn't it seem that Jesus is calling us rather to live lives that look like this, 
strongly, strongly tipped in the direction of his kingdom, his righteousness, so on and so forth. I mean, you look in the dictionary at the definition of the word seek, and you're never supposed to define a word with the same word or a similar word, but Webster's did, so I'll go with it. The definition of the word seek, according to Webster's, is to be sought. Yeah, this is humorous, right? Well, what does sought mean? It means like to pursue, to go after with intensity, to go after with fervor, not to live in perfect tension, but to go after with everything that we have. So you see, I don't think that God's all about us seeking the right perfect balance or even the right amount of margin in our lives as the end-all be-all of our existence. That's not why we're here, to strike the perfect balance. Rather, Jesus says, seek my kingdom. Seek me. Live righteously. Go after me above, beyond, before, anything and everything else. And when you do, tip the scales toward me. Orient your whole life toward me. And when you do, I'll give you everything you need. Including the margin and including the balance and including the health and including the resources. I'll give you everything that you need. Just come after me. Just pursue I mean, Matthew chapter 6, verse 33 isn't the only place in Scripture where Jesus paints this kind of a kingdom of God orientation. Those of you who are reading through our New Testament reading plan, if you don't know, Journey's reading through the whole New Testament in the year 2014. You can go to the info center when we're done in here, pick up a reading plan and get in and get on. It's not at all too late. But if you remember from this week's reading, Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 44, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven... Is like a treasure that a man discovered hidden in a field. In his excitement, he hid it again and sold everything he owned to get enough money to buy the field. That doesn't feel very balanced, does it? It rather seems quite like this, oriented strongly in the direction of the kingdom. In his excitement, he hides it again and sells everything he owns throws caution to the wind to get enough money to buy the field. Jesus goes on again. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant on the lookout for choice pearls. When he discovered a pearl of great value, he sold everything he owned again and bought it. That's not very balanced either, is it? Strongly tipped in the direction of the kingdom of God. You'd even call it perhaps imbalanced. It's like full-on, needle-buried, all-in-seeking, all-in-pursuit of the kingdom of God. Which is why over the course of the last week or so, I sense the Lord leading me to add this message on to the end of the Margin series. Because I want us as the Journey family to be really, really clear that the goal of the Margin conversation is not at all our comfort. This isn't about us being more cushy, more cozy, more fat and happy, nothing like that. Not even close to being about our comfort. Rather, the goal of this margin conversation that we've been engaged in is about having the room, the ability, the space to breathe physically, emotionally, with time and with finances so that we may all be about the things that matter forever and ever and ever 
which is the pursuit, the all-in, all-out pursuit of the kingdom of God. And we have this really cool lens, this really cool tool that we've been unpacking, some of us in small circles, that actually helps us understand, according to Jesus Christ, what the life, the balanced life of a disciple looks like. It doesn't look like merchant scales at all. Instead, according to Jesus, the balanced life of a disciple looks like a triangle. Some of you may have seen this triangle, and at the top of it, there's some space on your notes page. You could draw your own triangle if you'd like to. The up orientation, I'm going to unpack these in just a moment. Bottom right corner of the triangle is the in orientation. Bottom left corner of the triangle is the out orientation of our lives. And according to Jesus Christ, it's not a merchant scale. The balanced life of followers of Jesus Christ looks like this. The up, the in, and the out. And this is according to his life. This is according to Jesus' example. He says, this is what pursuit of the kingdom of God looks like. This is balance. This is the fruit of a life lived with margin, breathing room. And it starts, it all starts with the up component. Our vertical relationship between God and us. A balanced life, according to Jesus, all begins with an upward orientation toward God. Look at Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 from the message translation. Jesus saying, are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you burned out on religion? Jesus says, come to me. Get away with me. I love how the message says this. And you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real Rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. So you see, having margin and having breathing room in all of the areas of our life means that we have the ability to pursue God's kingdom with all of our being, pursue his righteousness with all of our being, which all begins by us spending time in the upward orientation with him, get this, every single day. Not hit or miss, not a couple of times a week, every day single day. And when you orient your being toward God, when you spend that kind of time with him, hearing from God through his word, hearing from him through prayer, responding then in obedience, that ought to just be, by the way, the automatic response. Anytime we hear anything from God, our automatic response would be, yes, right? He, he's God, we're not. He's asking us to do something. He's telling us to do something. And our automatic orientation should be, well, of course, yes, I'm in. Let's go. We don't have a conversation about it. We don't have a discussion about it. It's not like, well, when I get to it, it's like, yes, I'm in. You just say yes. Spending time with him in the upward orientation is how you maintain perspective on everything else that's happening in your life and in this world. It keeps our feet on the ground, our feet underneath us. In many instances, it keeps us vertical because let's face it, we all have a whole lot of stuff happening in our lives and happening in our world, the kind of stuff that rattles us and shakes us to our core, the kind of stuff that causes us to say, what in the world is going on? 
Some of you are experiencing those very kinds of things right now. Heartbreaking, gut-wrenching kinds of things. And just because of what I do, I get to watch a lot of people a lot of people. I get to walk with some people through those kinds of heartbreaking, gut-wrenching events, the kind of thing that just takes your breath away. They're that tragic. They're that awful. And every time I put my arm around anybody and walk through those kinds of circumstances, I have the same thought. See if this is the thought that comes to your mind in those circumstances. I say this. I just don't know how people make it through that kind of thing without God. Ever have that thought? I regularly have that conversation with the Lord. I have no idea how people stay vertical with that happening without, I don't know how they get out of bed in the morning. I don't have any idea how they do it. But with God, I watch people face the most incredible circumstances. Odds that are stacked unbelievably against them. And I watch them endure and persevere. And that's because there's something that God does in us when we abide with him. When we choose to be very intentional and purposeful and decisive about sitting at his feet and taking Jesus at this invitation. This is Jesus' invitation to all of us. Listen to what he says. To you, are you tired? Any of you tired? Maybe it's even worse than tired. Are you worn out? Jesus, this is Jesus' invitation to us. Are you worn out? How about this one? Are you burned out on religion? Jeez, aren't we all? Well, Jesus says, if that's you, pretty well captures all of us, doesn't it? Come to me, he says. Come to me and get away with me. Why? And you'll recover your life. You'll recover the life that I made you for from the very beginning of time that I intend for you. You'll recover your life. We're not just playing games here. You'll recover your life the way I intended it to be lived. I'll show you how to take a real, there's so much counterfeit rest going on out there. All this talk about a balanced life and three steps to this and 12 steps to that and 19 steps, you know. Jesus says, I'll show you how to take a real, authentic rest. Walk with me and work with me, Jesus. This is his invitation to us. Walk with me and work with me, he says. Watch how I do it. He's not just going to tell us. He's going to show us. He's going to scoop us up. And he's going to show us. Here, let me show you. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace, he says. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. And when we take Jesus at that invitation, when we abide with him, when we sit at his feet, when we orient our being toward him, we experience a peace and a calm that's almost surreal considering everything that we're walking through and facing and having to endure in this life. But it doesn't come automatically. It doesn't just happen because you want it to happen. It requires that we be very, very intentional and again decisive about our upward orientation with God. 
it requires that we Sabbath. I talked about this a few weeks ago and we're not very good at the Sabbath deal. We have like this antiquated view of what Sabbath is that we just sit in a dark room with a Bible in our lap and a rocking chair with the shades pulled and, and nobody's gonna do, no. That isn't at all what God has in mind. Sabbath is taking a day, setting it apart for God's purposes, which is really simply just hearing from him and responding to his voice. Hearing from him and responding to his voice, which means you gotta know the settings, the circumstances, the people, that when you're in those environments, God just speaks. And then you have a chance to respond to him. Sabbath can include, for example, great time of conversation with your spouse or your significant other, talking individually about the things you hear God telling you, as well as the things you hear God telling you together. That's a Sabbath kind of experience. Sabbath can include going to your special place, the top of that mountain, a hike. I'm not like talking about a 75-mile trek. That, that's called work. But a, a leisurely hike, or especially where, where we live, where God, I think, is speaking to us through his creation all the time. And we set ourselves into that posture where we can hear from him and respond to his voice. For me, I find fantastic Sabbath very often just sitting with my kids one by one by one. Listening to their dreams, listening to their hopes, listening to their fears, and then with them taking those to the Lord. Lord, what do you have for my son or daughter in all of this, in what you're saying and doing and the things you're stirring up? Those are all Sabbath activities, a life given to the seeking of the kingdom of God and his righteousness Includes daily up time with God as well as one day in seven that's set apart for Sabbath. It also includes, next stop on the triangle, according to Jesus, this is the balanced life. It includes an inward orientation. And you know what in means? It means it's building into the spiritual lives of other people. Other people in your spiritual family. That means... You're making disciples who are making disciples who are making disciples. It starts with the upward orientation, vertically oriented toward God. It continues with making disciples, pressing into your spiritual family. And the disciple-making deal, folks, we're all on the hook. Every single Christ follower, according to Jesus Christ, is intended to build into the lives of other Christ followers. And this is of the very highest importance to Jesus. Late in the gospel book of John, Jesus, as you might recall, was betrayed by his very closest friend, Judas. He's arrested. They took Jesus then to the high priest's house. You know the story. Peter, who was one of Jesus' closest disciples, is sort of lurking in the shadows behind everything that's happening. He's sort of sneaking around the edges, just watching all of this unfold along with another one of the disciples. And along the way, as Simon is sort of lurking in the shadows, he has the chance to either affirm, Simon Peter as they call him, he has the chance to either affirm his allegiance to Jesus or deny that he even knows who he is. 
Remember back earlier in the Gospels, Jesus had predicted that Simon Peter would actually disavow, disown any affiliation with Jesus, not just one time, but three times. And sure enough, it happens, just like Jesus said that it would happen, right? Peter disowns Jesus, disavows any knowledge of Jesus three different times, and then the rooster crows, and that's not the end of the story, though, is it? Jesus is taken before Pilate, who was the Roman governor. Jesus was then sentenced to death. Jesus made the long march up the hill, nailed to a cruel cross, where he took upon himself the sin of all of humanity, every person who'd ever lived, every person who ever will live. He took it on himself, and he was murdered on that cross. Think about it, murdered on that cross. Innocent man killed. They then took him down. He didn't even have enough money to buy a tomb, so they lay him in a borrowed tomb. And three days later, Sunday morning, Jesus rises, and it is spectacular. And what's the first thing Jesus did after he rose from the dead? He starts appearing to different people. Wouldn't that be cool? You've been dead and then you're raised and then you just start showing up. You just start popping into places. Remember, he starts by showing up with Mary Magdalene and she thinks it's the gardener scene. And then there's all the disciples. Next time Jesus shows up, there's all the disciples. They sort of lock themselves in this room because they're all freaked out, crying, holding each other, going like, what are we gonna do? I probably would have been there too. And then all of a sudden, as they're having a fit, Here's Jesus standing like, whoa, he just walks through the wall and there he is. Then he shows up to Thomas. And then in my favorite story in the whole New Testament, Jesus shows up, remember this story, alongside the Sea of Galilee. Several of Christ's followers were out fishing. They went back to the thing that they knew that was fishing. So out they go and then here comes Jesus. And it's this really, really moving scene. Jesus cooking breakfast on the beach for his followers. And the scripture is really careful to tell us that Jesus served his disciples. He cooked and then he serves his disciples breakfast. But it's not just a breakfast meeting, it's a business meeting all about Jesus' family business. And he gets down to the family business with Peter in particular. And we pick up the story in John chapter 21, starting in verse 15. After breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John. Now, this is like the formal way of addressing Simon Peter. It's like those times when your mom called you by your first, middle, and last name, Brian, Daryl, Hopkins. You're busted, right? It's trouble. Simon, son of John, heats on. Do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied. You know I love you. Simon, son of John, do you love me more? Now, there's a couple of different things going on there. Jesus could really be asking two different questions. One could be, Simon, do you love me more than you love all these boats and all these fish? Basically, do you love me more than you love your previous vocation before you met me? That's what Simon Peter was. He was a fisherman. So when the chips are down, Jesus checks out. He's showing up randomly here and there. They don't know exactly what's going on. Simon Peter goes back to what he knew. Okay, I got to make some money, so I'm going to go fishing. So Jesus could be challenging him. Do you love me more than you love your previous 
vocation. The other option could be, Simon, do you love me more than you love these men with whom you're working, who you've spent the last three plus years living, eating, breathing, sleeping, serving? Do you love me more than you love these guys? Both views on Jesus' question could be really relevant, right? In essence, it's about Jesus calling Peter to a choice. Do you love your career as a fisherman, or are you going to be my disciple who makes disciples who make disciples. But in this setting, you think about the circumstances. Jesus, right? He's God. He's the one who knows everything. He understands that even though Peter has done the unthinkable, he's denied him not just once, but three times. What Jesus knows about Peter is he's still a man of great faith. He's still a man of great commitment. Nothing's changed about Peter's character, which leads us really to land in the place of saying, Peter, do you love me? Do you really love me more than these other guys love me? Is your love a cut above even these other guys who I think love me a lot? And what's he say? Yes. Yes, Lord, I do. You know I love you. And then Jesus says this really weird thing. Then feed my lambs. And they're standing on the shore of the Sea of Galilee and Peter's going like, what, we're having breakfast on the beach and you're talking about, where's the lambs? And then he goes on. Jesus repeated the question. Simon, son of John, uh-oh, trouble time again. Do you love me? Yes, Lord. Peter said his eyes are a little wider this time. What are you getting at? You know I love you. Well, then we go back to the sheep thing again. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. Now Peter's like shrugging his shoulders. okay. Sheep must be pretty important to you. Okay. A third time, Jesus asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Now, Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question a third time. Like, come on. Are we playing a game here? What's, what's going on? He said, Lord, you know everything. You know it all. You can see my heart. You can see everything. Of course, you know that I love you, Jesus says. Well, then feed my sheep. And what we have to understand is this message that Jesus gives to Peter, it's not just for Peter, it's for us, every follower of Jesus Christ on planet earth. And it's this really simple message. If you say you love Jesus, then you have responsibility. The onus is on you then to feed my lambs, take care of my sheep, and feed my sheep, which in more contemporary language means that we have responsibility to make disciples of the people right around us right now. Not someday when we get everything all figured out and when our affairs are in perfect order and when we're all shined up and neat and tidy. No, now. We have responsibility to make disciples of people right around us right now. Parents, lots of us are parents. That means it probably starts with you making disciples of your kids. You have this like built-in discipleship assignment right under your own roof. And that's really daunting, isn't it? Really daunting, but it doesn't have to be. Because you see, us as parents discipling our kids can be as simple as starting. And this is just a starting place. But starting with a conversation with your whole family at the dinner table. Maybe you set apart a separate time where you all sit around the living room in a circle, and you just ask your kids to talk with you out loud about the things they think God's saying to them that day or that week, and then you follow that up with a question, and what are you going to do about the things God's saying to you today? What are you going to do about the things God's saying to you 
this week. What are you going to do about it? What's God saying and what are you going to do about it? And you've just had a discipling conversation. Discipleship 101. We often make this a whole lot more difficult than it has to be. We think discipleship has to be perfectly planned and elaborate, this big curriculum, you know, and we got to know all the answers. And I think that causes some parents actually to just say, well, I'm sure glad there's things like base camp and student ministry at my church where those professionals are doing stuff, discipling my kid or our kids and like stop the press. No, 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 no. Please do not think that way. I want to go on record, parents, as saying that our base camp ministry and our student ministries, middle and high school, are fantastic. I mean fantastic. They are staffed by some of the best people you will ever meet. And, please hear me clearly, they are not in any way replacement disciplers for you parents. Not even close. They're not charged with doing the job that God gave you to do with your children. They do see themselves as your partners in the discipleship of your kids, but they do not do it all, cannot do it all, should not be doing it all. Their role is to come alongside you and partner with you in the discipleship of your kids that you're already doing day in and day out. It's our job, parents. Now let's role play this a little bit. You could be having a conversation with your eight-year-old son or daughter and your eight-year-old son or daughter is talking to you about how little Susie was mean to them on the playground today and little Susie threw a rock and it hit me in the head and made me really mad, right? Well, a discipling conversation turns that into a question. Well, what's God saying to you about how to respond when little Susie is a jerk to you and throws a rock at your head? And right there with just a question, you've created a discipling moment with your kid that can go a whole bunch of different directions. If they say, well, I actually don't have any idea what God's saying to me about that, then you can suggest some things. Well, here's what the scripture says we should do when people treat us poorly and so. And then you turn your kid loose, you mobilize your kid to run those tracks out. Great, I'm gonna try that, mom, dad, cool. If they say, well, I think God wants me to do X, Y, or Z, they fill in the blank, then you get to help them run what they think they hear God saying through the grid of the scripture. Does it square with the Bible? If your kid says, well, God told me to go knock Susie on the head with my fist after she throws it, then you get to go, wait, 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 time out. We're going to have a corrective discipling conversation now. That is not at all what God told you to do about Susie. You can talk about turning the other cheek and so, but it's, it's just a couple of questions that can actually orient your whole family conversation toward discipleship, the in component of a balanced life according to Jesus. Now, lots of us don't have kids, I know. But you can have those very same kinds of conversations with your roommate or with your friends or with your coworkers or with anybody, as a matter of fact, who you're in relation. We all talk to people all day long. One of the primary things we like to talk about is the things that are happening in our lives, Right? So a discipling conversation is simply about leveraging what might be ordinary conversations, turning them into discipling conversations by asking really simple questions to help people start to process what God's doing and saying in and through what might be the ordinary stuff of life. What's God saying to you about cutting people off in traffic and flipping people off? What's God saying to you about that? 
Some of you have no idea what that word means that I just said. Ask your mom or dad. Sorry, parents, if I've created an uncomfortable discipling conversation for you following church today. Forgive me. But you just, you build on conversations. So how'd that go when you reacted like God wanted you to? You see how this goes. A balanced life according to Jesus Christ starts with an upward orientation. It includes an inward orientation, which is disciples making disciples who make disciples. And then last is an outward component. A balanced life according to Jesus Christ is all about you and I displaying and declaring the gospel to a broken world. It's you and me serving people who are living separated from God, bringing God's righteousness and justice to those in need. It's modeling the very same things that we see Jesus doing. It's us doing the very same things we see Jesus doing. Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 35. This is a snapshot from Jesus' life. Jesus traveled through all the towns and villages of that area, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom. And he healed every kind of disease and illness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. He said to his disciples, the harvest is great, but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest. Ask him to send more workers into his fields. We do what we see Jesus going and doing, proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ, of the kingdom of God, and healing people. It's attending to the physical and spiritual brokenness of others. But folks, we've got to be really, really intentional about all of these, but especially the out. We have to be really, really intentional. If all of our friends, for example, are Christians, it's going to be really, really hard to live with any kind of outward orientation, isn't it? If we want to have an outward orientation, which according to Jesus is part of a balanced life, his view on what balance is, kingdom orientation, we're going to have to go places, we're going to have to hang out with people who are living without Christ. And we're going to have to be strategic and decisive and intentional about that. Something that some folks around Journey Church are doing that I just love. Some of you might not know, but there's a place called the Community Cafe over on 7th, the old Frontier Pies building. Some community organizations got together and said, you know, there's people every single day in our community who are hungry, lonely, and need a meal. And so we're going to reopen that place. We call it the Community Cafe. And we're just going to serve a meal to anybody who shows up. There's no fee. You don't have to show any paperwork to walk in the door. You just show up at mealtime and volunteers have lovingly, carefully prepared meals. They serve the meals and they hang out with anybody who shows up that day to eat. It's a fantastic ministry. And some people around Journey have said, we're going to make that part of our outward orientation. We're going to serve there once a month. We're going to help prepare the meals. We're going to love, we're going to serve those meals. We're going to love on the people who show up and we're going to have fantastic spiritual conversations. We're going to meet their needs outside of that time. The stories that have come out of it have just been fantastic. That's life according to Jesus Christ. Meeting the physical and spiritual needs of people all across our community and journey. Sky's the limit when it comes to engaging with people who are living without Christ. We just have to be intentional and go. Be intentional and go. 
So there's all these people in the world who are talking about what a balanced life looks like. Set of perfectly balanced merchants, scales, right? And Jesus says, no, no, no. A perfectly balanced life is a life that's rightly calibrated between an upward orientation, an inward orientation, and an outward orientation. This is life according to Jesus Christ. And if you notice anything about this, it's not at all inclined toward our comfort. It's not about us. It's not about us being cushy and fat and happy. And it's all about his kingdom. Seek my kingdom above everything else and live righteously, Jesus says, and I'll give you everything you need. The margin, the resources, the health. I'll give you everything you need, he says. Take your stuff and set it aside if you would, and I just invite you to close your eyes and bow your heads. And would you just press in with the Lord about what he's talking to you about, this triangle. As you lay that triangle over your life, what do you hear Jesus saying to you? Where is it that you hear Jesus saying, I want to roll up my sleeves with you on that one in particular? Starting today, I, I want to go to work with you on it. Maybe for you, it's the up orientation, spending time with him every day, Sabbath. So... Maybe for others of us, it's the inward component. Like, man, you got these people and you think you got to have it all figured out before you can, quote unquote, disciple somebody. But how do you turn ordinary conversations into discipling conversations using those simple two questions? What's God saying to you through that? And what are you going to do with what God's saying to you? Maybe others of us, we've got some outward orientation issues to work on. We've got deep ruts, some of us set in our life that keep us confined to certain people groups and maybe we're just surrounded by Christians everywhere we go. Perhaps Jesus' challenge to you is that you gotta get out of that rut and it's time for you to go rub shoulders with people who are living life without God. Jesus, our heart's cry is that we would live the balanced life, not according to the world, but according to you, the way you say we're meant to live it. The way you designed life to be lived. And oh God, that you would rightly calibrate every single one of us in all three of those areas. Sure, you can start with one, but would you work us over on all three of them? that are up and are in and are out. But I'll be of you, but I'll be inclined toward you, toward your kingdom, that the scales of our lives would be pegged on kingdom orientation. And that we wouldn't be living life for any other reason. For crying out loud, Jesus, you've given us just, your scripture says, our life is like a mist here for a little while and then gone. 
that we'd leverage these few years, that we'd leverage this gift of years you've given us for your kingdom. And that our comfort wouldn't be anywhere on the radar screen. That we just want to live for you, love you, serve you, display and declare you, know you. That you would be the very reason that we live, Jesus. Your kingdom. And your kingdom come on earth just as it is in heaven through us, Father.